invite you to turn to 1 John. This is where we're spending our Sundays in this month of June. Our series is titled Gospel Assurance in a Deconversion Age. And so last Sunday, last Sunday we looked at our assurance as Christians. This morning we're looking at our assurance against sin. Next Sunday, we are looking at our assurance at the coming of Christ. And then the final Sunday, we're looking at our assurance at the coming judgment. And so before we jump into our text this morning, which will be chapter 1, verse 5, through, or, uh, through chapter 2, verse 2, I want to give, um, kind of rehearse the occasion for John's first letter here. And I want to do this because if you hear last week, I, I, I talked about going on an Alaskan cruise and every morning pulling back the curtain to see out on our balcony what wonders Alaska had from me. And that was the thing that surprised me most is that I looked forward most eagerly to that very moment when the curtain was pulled back and I saw different wonders that took my breath away. That was the most enjoyable Christmas morning type experience on, on the cruise. And so why it's significantly important for us to understand the occasion for why John wrote this first letter is because the clearer we are on why John wrote this particular epistle, the more wonders of the gospel are we going to see. The more we understand why John penned this letter to this church or group of churches because of what they were facing, the more assurance we are going to experience because of what we are seeing in the gospel itself. And that's what this particular text is doing for us. So the occasion for John's letter to this group of churches is laid out for us, we looked at this last week, chapter 2, verses 18 to 26, where he says we're in these last times and many antichrists had come and then he, he's, he's telling us why he's using this word antichrist because there were very visible and vocal members within the churches that had left, abandoned the visible church and had rejected the apostolic gospel and by doing so, by abandoning the visible church, by rejecting the apostolic gospel, they demonstrated that they were never of them. And there was one particular issue that this group of individuals disagreed with regarding what the church actually believed. And it was this question, is Jesus Christ the Messiah? Or isn't he? And this was largely a Jewish debate. So recent research I, I noted last week has, to me, convincingly argued that this was a Jewish debate within this group of churches where you had Jews who were saying, okay, enough of this. We actually do not believe that Jesus is the resurrected Messiah. And yet, at the same time, we still believe there is a way to the Father, and we actually know the Father. So they leave the church, and they do not leave quietly. And the reason I say that these particular individuals 
were vocal and visible members of the church previously is because in chapter 2, verse 26, John writes, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So these are not members that abandoned the visible church, rejected the apostolic gospel, and just went off and did their own thing. They, they turned around and they actively worked to deceive those who remained in the church and they made all kinds of claims that they possessed a certain knowledge that they actually knew the Father and you did not need Jesus. Jesus is not necessary in order for you to know the Father and as a result, it was causing all kinds of turmoil within within the church. So 1 John was not given to these Christians who remained in order to test their faith. It was not given to this church, to this, this group of churches to say, okay, let's just make sure you are in the faith so that you're not sitting there and not actually a Christian. That's not why 1 John was given. Their faith was already being tested. Those vocal Visible former members are now trying to deceive them, and their faith is actually under attack. So that this group of churches is filled with individuals who are lacking in assurance. So rather, 1 John was was given to them to test the, the individuals who left. It's to give them a clear test so they can look at this very visible vocal group of former members and go, yes, they do not know the true God. We actually know the true God. We have within the church everything we need to know and enjoy fellowship with the Father and fellowship with each other. We already have everything necessary for that. That's what First John is doing. One of the consequences of denying that Jesus is the resurrected Messiah is utterly wrong thinking about sin itself and your relationship to sin. So you have these individuals who left and they make certain claims about their relationship to sin that actually results in the churches beginning to wonder, since they still struggle with sin, do we really know the Father? Given how we struggle with sin still, could it be then that we really do not know the Father? So that's the issue here. That's why it's, it follows so very quickly on the, on the heels of John giving us the apostolic gospel, verses 1 through 4, at the very head of the letter, to now dealing with the issue of sin, because if, if you're wrong about Jesus the Messiah, then certainly if you're trying to deceive others, you're going to create new definitions of sin and redefine the kind of relationship that you have with sin. And that's why we have this particular section here. So what does John do? 
He, he brings the gospel of the resurrected Son to bear upon their troubled hearts as it relates to sin itself. That's what he's doing. He's taking chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and now he's applying it to a particular struggle with sin. And what he wants to do as he brings the gospel of the resurrected Christ to bear upon their ongoing struggle with sin is he wants to show how essential assurance is both for facing sin and for what you do after you sin. So our text is chapter 1, verse 5 through 2-2, and we're going to look, look at this text with, uh, under two headings, our assurance before we sin and then our assurance after we sin. We'll spend the bulk of our time on the first one, our assurance before we sin. So let's read, starting in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. No uncertainty about who God is, no doubt about what He's truly like, no wondering necessary, so that's, that I think is, was one of the primary stresses when He says that God is light here and in Him is no darkness at all. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But, I mean, and then verse uh, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. So let's look at our assurance before we sin. So the interpretive key that I laid out last week for the entire letter is 1 John 5.13, where John says, I write these things, so everything in this letter that I've laid out before you, that you've now read, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So what's he doing? He's He's affirming that they do indeed believe in Jesus, the Son of God, the resurrected Messiah. He says, I'm writing to you who believe that you may know that you have eternal life. So that is what is the overarching control of how we understand, how we interpret what goes on in this particular letter. Within that overarching theme you have here, In chapter 2, verse 1, John's saying, My little children, I am writing these things, so different these things, which actually is referring to verse 5 and on, chapter 1, verse 5. So now he's limiting these things and saying, I'm writing chapter chapter 1, verse 5, all the way to where we are now. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not, what? Sin. So, 
Here's what's, here's what's beautiful about this. The assurance that you know the Father is actually to be a help against sin. To be sure that you know the Father actually strengthens you in the fight against sin. Now, does it eliminate our struggle with sin? Absolutely not. That's why he goes on and he says, but if you do, if someone does sin, we have this. But it does help us in the battle with sin to know that we actually know and enjoy fellowship with the Father. And we'll talk about why that is uh, later on. But what's going on then in verses 5 through 10 of chapter 1? So the reason John gives is through three claims that are made by these people who have left the church. You see that in the phrase, if we say, see that in verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10. So the reason John says this, if we say, and he does it three times, is because these deconversionists, as we're calling them, are trying to deceive those who remained in these churches. So these claims, I believe, are actually an attempt to deceive, to cause the church to doubt that they actually know the Father. So their claim about their current relationship with sin is meant to cause the believers to doubt whether or not they, they know the Father. So what deceptive claims have they made? Verse, verses 6, 8, and 10 are the answer to that question. So three deceptive claims. Look at verse 6. The first deceptive claim is we have fellowship with God. And by God there means the Father. So uh, it, he, John says, if we say that we have fellowship with Him, Him right there is actually referring to the Father. If we say that we have fellowship with the Father, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, I cannot stress this more. John's not talking about those who remained in the church. John's not wondering, as he writes this, that there are individuals within this church who claim to have fellowship with God when in reality they, they do not. That's not what John's doing here. He's, he's not wanting what he says here to cause those within the church, certain individuals that he thinks don't really know the Father, to question that so that they can come to a true knowledge of the Father through Jesus. That's not what's in John's mind here. He's talking about those who abandoned the church, the visible church. He's talking about those who have rejected the apostolic gospel. So John says in verse 6, with them in mind, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, and by walking in darkness, here's what John means. While we've abandoned the visible church and rejected the apostolic gospel. If we claim that we have fellowship with God and we've abandoned the visible church, and we've rejected the apostolic gospel, the gospel that was passed down to us from the apostles themselves, we are actually walking in darkness, 
and we're lying and not practicing the truth. That's what's going on here in this verse. So what John is doing by giving them clear eyes to understand what's actually going on with these secessionists, with these deconversionists, is to help encourage and assure these Christians that they do indeed know the Father. What's the second claim? They claimed we are without sin. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So those who remained within the church were not claiming to be without sin. Nobody in the church was claiming to be without sin. The only ones who were making that particular claim were the deconversionists, those who left and are now trying to deceive the church. We, we don't know exactly what their views on sin were. John doesn't tell us. But we do know that those who have rejected the apostolic gospel have to do something with sin, right? If they claim, they still know the Father. So what they're, what they're doing is they're either redefining sin or they're confusing categories or conflating categories. But whatever they're doing with the doctrine of sin, it's causing true believers to wonder if they, they actually know the Father. And then the third claim, very similar to this, is verse 10, we have not sinned. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So although we do not know what their particular views on sin were and how they now related to sin, we do know from deconversionists in our day that they do redefine sin. Vincent Green sent me a, a, a video of one of these, called a poster child of, of deconversionists who's actively working through social media to convert those who are within the church to join her in her rejection of the truth of Scripture and a better way of interacting spiritual, in, in the spiritual world. And what I listened to a couple of her videos, and she's utterly confusing, intentionally. These are typically not individuals who are confused. They're actually individuals who are trying to be confusing. So they, they confuse categories of biblical thought, biblical doctrine. They conflate categories of biblical doctrine. They they try to make truth sound as unbelievable as possible. Why could you believe something like this here when it says this over here? And they're making no attempt to actually let Scripture speak for itself. So how does John actually cut through the fog of their deception? Look at chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you from Jesus. We heard from Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. You ever gone to a, a city for the very first time and you arrive there at night? I've done it on a number of occasions. 
You're seeing the city, but there's most of the city you're not seeing. Until you wake up in the morning and you go outside and you're like, ah, this city is a lot nicer than I thought, or it's not as nice as I thought. You're seeing the city, but you're not seeing the most important part of the city. You're not seeing what makes the city what it is. You really don't know at night what the city is like. When John says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all, in this context he's saying that you don't have to wonder what God is like. You do not have to wonder what the Father's disposition is toward you. He is light. He's not hiding anything. What the scriptures reveal about God are what needs to be revealed. There's not some hidden agenda, some secret thing about God that the scriptures aren't making clear and oh, it's too bad that you don't understand this particular thing about the Father. It reveals everything that needs to be known about coming to the Father and having fellowship with the Father. It doesn't hide from you some secret agenda that the Father has. And because of that secret agenda, He doesn't love you, enjoy you, want to fellowship with you. When Jesus came, you remember, Jesus rises from the dead. This is John chapter 20. Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb and she sees this. She thinks it's the, the gardener, but it's actually Jesus. And then he says, he speaks to her and suddenly she awakens to the fact that this is Jesus. He's, he, he's, he's alive. And then Jesus says to her, he's, she's clinging to him. He says, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to my father. But, so don't cling But go tell my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father. That's all light right there. That's all light. Jesus telling Mary to tell his brothers something about the Father that is light. Go tell my Father, I'm about to go to Him, go tell my Father and your Father to my God and your God. When Jesus says this, and then it says Mary returns to the disciples and it says, she says, I have seen the Lord and then she tells them the things that He said. That's all light. This is who the Father is. God is light and in Him is no hidden agenda. There's no uncertainty. He he means the Father sent Jesus to reveal Himself so that you can know what He's truly like. So what clarity does John provide for those who have remained in the visible church and 
are under the apostolic gospel? What kind of clarity does John provide? Verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God, the Father, is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, as he has made himself known to us, if we walk in the light as the Father has made Himself known to us through the resurrected Son, two things are true. We have fellowship with one another, and what? And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. First John 2, one says, My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I'm writing these things to you to assure you that you do indeed know the Father so that you do not sin. To walk in the light means you have received the Father's True revelation of Himself through the resurrected and ascended Son. That's what it means to walk in the light. Heritage Bible Church, you walk in the light. You walk in the light. You have all the light. John's point is that the secessionists, these deconversionists, have abandoned the light by leaving the church and rejecting the gospel. That's his point. They walk in darkness. John's word of encouragement to those who remained within the church is that you are in the light just as Jesus has revealed to light the truth of the Father. And because of that, We have fellowship with one another. And number two, and this is relevant now to what the struggle is, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Verse 7. The blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. The word confession in verse 9, if we confess our sins, the Father is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confession there is used several times in, John's, in this first letter of John. Verse 9 is the first, if we confess our sins, the Father's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then chapter 2, verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So there's the confession of sin and there's the confession of the Son. And to confess the Son is to have the Father. Chapter 4, verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. Verse 15, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. God abides in Him and He in God. Now why do I read those 
All those references to confessing in, in, in this first letter. Because Christians do two things. We have two confessions. We confess that Jesus is the resurrected and ascended Messiah. And because that's who he is, we also what? Freely confess our sins. Our sins do not make us fear God to be tormented by the thought of God, but because we confess Jesus as the resurrected and ascended Messiah, we are enabled and empowered and freed to actually confess our sins. The Heidelberg uh, uh, Confession in question 56 asks this question, Why do you, what do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? And here's, here's the answer it gives. That God, for the sake of Christ's satisfaction, the propitiation that he made to deal with our sin and the wrath of God, that for the sake of Christ's satisfaction will no longer remember my sins, neither my corrupt nature against which I have to struggle all life long. To have the forgiveness of sins means that God no longer remembers my sin or my corrupt nature against which we struggle every day that we live. This forgiveness is the high water mark of the new covenant. This is the high water mark. Jeremiah 31, 34, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Here's why they will all know me from the least to the greatest. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's the high water mark. The question is, what does it mean for God not to remember our sin any longer? It it, it doesn't mean that he's a little less omniscient now like the joke there? He's a little less omniscient. Not what it means. Psalm 103, verse 3. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems you, your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Verse 10. He does not deal with you according to our sins. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. So get this. In this context, when John says that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all, he means that the Father does not deal with us according to our sins. That's what it means for God to be light and in Him 
is no darkness. Because of Jesus, the Father never deals with you according to your sins. That's why in chapter 2, verse 12, John writes, I'm writing to you little children. I love this. Listen, listen how confident John is here. He doesn't head, he doesn't slide into this. He doesn't give qualifications. Yeah, you know, this is true if. No, listen to what he says. This is chapter 2, verse 12. I'm writing to you little children because your sins are Forgiven for his name's sake. No darkness there. That's all light. That's all light. No darkness. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven for his Christ's namesake. And then the, the last, the third part of verse 13. 1 John 2.13 says, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. You, you have the forgiveness of sins, and because you have the forgiveness of sins, you know the Father. This is all light. So let's remind ourselves, why, why is John writing these things? For John 1, 5 through 10, why is he writing these things? The answer, chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. Okay, let that sit on you. You're forgiven. Father does not deal with you according to your sins ever. He disciplines, yes. But as a father, not as a judge. The judge does not discipline you. The father disciplines you. Does being assured that I know the father that my sins are forgiven mean that you won't sin? No. But it sure helps. Think of children who grow up in a home where they don't know if their father loves them. How are they going to act in that home? They, depending on the personality of the kid, they may just live in all-out rebellion against the father and mouth off all the time. That's a possibility. What's the other possibility? They cower and they do what they're told, but it's hypocritical obedience. It's, it's not obedience that flows out of the love that they share with the father, with their father. You could apply that to any kind of relationship that we have, husband and wife, 
If, if the wife doesn't know if the husband, if her husband loves her, what does that do to the relationship? Completely alters the, the dynamic within the home. Talk about an employer and employee relationship. If the employee doesn't think the boss likes them, it changes the whole dynamic within the office, the way you relate to, to, the, to the boss. Knowing that the Father loves you, that He will not treat you according to what your sins deserve, will change the way you relate to Him. That's why in chapter 5, He says, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And then you can finish it for me. And His commands are not what? Burdensome. Why is that? Because what you see with the Father and Jesus is what you get. What you see in the Father because of Jesus is always what you get. He never remembers your sin. He never treats you according to the sin you have committed. And that transforms the way we relate to the Father day in and day out. We will still sin. So what what do we do when we do? What do we do when we do? And that brings us to our second heading, which is more like a conclusion. So don't worry. Our assurance after we sin. Chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I'm writing to you these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. After you sin, what do you have? You have an advocate. What's an advocate? An advocate is someone who appears on behalf of another. I served, this was uh, early 2000s, I served in a, uh, as a juror on a criminal case. And there was, you know, all 12 of us in the courtroom, and the defendant refuses to have an attorney. The judge strongly insisted that he have an attorney, but he stubbornly refused to have an attorney. I'll just tell you this. It did not go well. It did not go well for this individual. You need an advocate. But what's remarkable here is that the advocate is not with the judge. The advocate is with what? The Father. It's not as if the Father needs to be convinced that the forgiveness He gave you at the start needs to be continued. This is not a judge who needs to be reconvinced that you need the forgiveness He's already provided through Jesus. No, this is an advocate with the Father. 
Who is our advocate? Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is, he is like us in the best of ways. He's human. And he's unlike us in the most important of ways. He's righteous. He's like us in the best of ways. He's human. And he's unlike us in the most important of ways. He's utterly, completely, fully righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Now, I'm not going to go into that word this week. That's in two weeks when we get to chapter 4. But this is an advocate with our Father. And Jesus being with the Father as our advocate, he's not a Johnny-come-lately with the Father. Because the opening of the letter, as he rehearses the apostolic gospel, he refers to him as Jesus as the one who was with the Father. So this isn't, not, this isn't his first time with the Father. It's what he's known for all of eternity. This time with the Father is for us. It's not for himself. He's with the Father for us. Put for us in all caps. He's with the Father for us. Why do we need an advocate? To remind us that we do not have to beat ourselves up, put ourselves in some kind of spiritual probation before we can run to the Father. We've got to get our act together. We've got to put in some consistent Bible reading on longer, harder texts like Leviticus before we can go to the Father. No, we have an advocate with the Father, meaning run to the Father. That's who He is to you. He doesn't stop being your Father when you sin. He is your Father. Therefore, run to Him when you sin. So, assurance equips us and empowers us when we are tempted to sin and after we sin, it enables us and empowers us and inclines us to run to the Father because that's who He is to us. He's our Father. And this is John's message to the church. Where you are right now is where you stay. Stay in the church. Because that's where you walk in the light. Because God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. What you see in Jesus about the Father is what you get. Stay in the church. Keep receiving and believing the apostolic gospel because it is good news. It is good news.
for all who believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not hidden yourself from us, but you have made yourself known to us. You have revealed yourself to us through Jesus Christ. And so we embrace all that Jesus is for us. We believe it, and we come to you as our Father, and may we do so every minute of every day this week as those who know that you have forgiven us in Christ Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray.